Welcome, buddy. Thank you. Grab a seat. These pretty cool couches, actually. Nice and comfortable. Now, what we're going to uh, hear this morning, as I've just prayed, is, is just, uh, if you're with us, you know, if this is very new to you, and maybe you've never been in a, in a building um, uh, like the rock. Um, a lot of people call the building the church, but the church is God's people. And so we don't come to church, you're amongst the church. And, uh, and we want to encourage ourselves today with just what Jesus is doing. He's a living person, he's alive, he's well. And he came to uh, set us free and to bring us into a reality that, that uh, has always been. That uh, I know myself at the age of 29 discovered it and I'm moving more and more into just a life of abundance. And, and, and this is what we're going to hear uh, about today is just uh, someone that, that grew up uh, in a sense of having a belief but how that belief has transformed into a conviction and just a, a, a transformation. And so thanks Jono for, for doing this and, um, and being vulnerable in, in front of us all because I know that when we're vulnerable um, there's something about that that attracts God and, and it will empower others and encourage others today with certainly your journey. So I thought it would just be a good start uh, just to get some context. It would just be to start just asking um, Jono about uh, his upbringing, uh, his background, his family dynamics so we can start getting a picture of who this man is. And so why don't you share with us some of your dynamics. Uh, you're from the, the motherland, uh, so there's a unity between you and me right there. Um, and Simon, see we're building the three of us, and uh, anyway, just share uh, with us about your family dynamics. Okay, um, hi everybody, um, I, I grew up in uh, England, um, I was uh, the third child of a, a family of four, uh, my dad, um, uh, when I was born, he was a Baptist minister, and uh, he was studying for a PhD at the time and so he was going to university at the same time as trying to run his parish um, if they call it a parish in a Baptist church I'm not sure But uh, um, and I think my mother must have been quite stressed out um, having three kids we were 18 months apart and I was the third one so I think it must have been quite difficult for her um, I was always known to be very demanding I was always in trouble um, and I, I, I think, you know, uh, negative attention is better than no attention. And so, you know, I would uh, do anything to sort of get attention. Um, when I was very young, I used to cry a lot. And uh, I know the district nurse told my mother that if I cried to put me outside in the pram or put me in a bath, because then the echoing of the noise would actually, um, you know, sort of disturb me and stop me from crying. Um, so it was as I was growing up they put me outside in the pram one day and there was a really heavy rainstorm and they forgot about me totally because I was outside and when eventually they remembered that I was missing they came out and there was about six inches of water in my pram and I was just sort of splashing about in this water <laughs> and so I, I, was, I was renowned for being um, you know liking water at that time and I don't know <laughs> um, that was, was that the English Learn to Swim program? Yeah, prob <laughs> <laughs> yeah probably. Um, I learnt, incidentally, I learned to swim when I was very early, um, very young. I learned to swim underwater before I could swim on the top. 
um, because I could hold my breath for the whole length of the swimming, well, the whole width of the swimming pool. And so I, my brother and sister were swimming, so I'd go underneath and I'd get up the other side, and I was all right. But uh, <laughs> what, what was it like um, living with a father that was a, a Baptist minister? You, you put in your notes that he preached yeah. hell, fire, and brimstone. My, my dad was one of these guys who preached in the pulpit with a Bible, and he always preached from the text, and he'd always be thumping his Bible and shouting, shouting at the congregation and his audience. And he was like that at home. I mean, he used to shout a lot, um, punish us a lot, uh, physically punish us a lot. And it was just the way that things things were then. Um, and so the, the sort of concept of a, a loving father to me was something fairly alien. You know, we, we were told to sort of, you know, when dad came home, you were quiet and the slippers were by the fire. And, you know, we, we had to turn the television off or go to our rooms or something like that. You know, so it was... Um, very different to the sort of lot more liberal as I see kids as growing up in today. Mm. You mentioned that um, you had an understanding that the things, or you were made to believe or feel it, so the things that you did wrong, you mentioned before that you were in trouble a lot, uh, were sins, were classified as sins against God. Yeah. Um, my mother uh, didn't punish us physically, but she used to Tell us off. My mother was born in um, the Welsh Valleys, and I don't know if anybody knows of the Welsh Valleys, but the, um, the, the fairly strict church goes in that sort of area, predominantly chapel, um, which is a, a fairly sort of strict, um, uh, I, I suppose, Baptist, is it? Yeah. In, uh, but my mother would, wouldn't punish us, but she'd actually quote something from the Bible and say, I was sinning against God. Um, and as a little boy growing up, that's quite a difficult thing to understand. So I was quite scared of God, and I was mm. scared of my dad and scared of God. You know, I mean, mm. I didn't really understand. What sort of um, what imagery did that put in your mind of God? Like, was this a, was he a, a bad guy with a big stick sort of thing, would smack you on the back of the head? Is that how you sort of viewed viewed? Yeah, yes, I think I, I'm not really sure what I thought, but uh, but. To, to, to believe in God, I, f- I felt that I had to follow all these rules and I was going to be in trouble if I didn't. And I think that was, that was the thing. I, I didn't understand what it was, but um, I didn't really um, understand forgiveness and, and things like that because there sure. didn't seem to be forgiveness in my, in my yeah. life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned that um, you sort of in your family growing up and... and I'm not sure whether it was because you were you were always in trouble and, and, and having that sense of punishment, but you said you always felt you were out of place and possibly um, didn't belong to your family. Do you want to expand on? Well, I, I don't know if anybody else has had, had that feeling of not belonging in a family. I didn't think I'd belong in my family. I thought I'd been adopted. And I said that to my sister. She's 18 months older than me. And she said, I remember you being born. <laughs> <laughs> she said, and I was thinking, how can she remember me being born when she's only 18 months old? But, you know, I was about five then. I don't know if I had the rational thinking. But I just didn't feel as if I belonged in the family. You know, I, I was always wanting, uh, you know, thinking that I was from somewhere else. Um, and so I always felt very, very ill at ease. Um, always looking, I suppose, for excitement and anything really to sort of take me away from where I was. I certainly wasn't happy. Sure. And so let's, you know, you're growing up, you start school, um, you see, you've said here that um, school wasn't easy for you, um, learning wasn't necessarily easy, and you found yourself getting in quite a lot of trouble at school. Maybe just sort of unpack yeah. some of that for us. 
Uh, I think from a very early age, I, I, I always looked beyond where I was. Um, I wasn't happy just sort of being in the schoolroom I was in. Um, I, I wanted to, to, to sort of be outside. Um, and in, in an English school, there was um, they used coke uh, to heat the fires. This was coking coal. And there was a great big pile of it. And I knew if I climbed up to the top of this pile, I could see over the wall into the park. And so I was always climbing up to the top of this and getting into trouble. The, the trouble was coke was very black. And so I'd be covered, absolutely covered in this coal dust. But all I wanted to see was in the park because that was escape. That was outside. And so all of my life I was thinking that I had to get away and sort of get, get out uh, and get away from it. And what sort of, I mean, what was life like at school then? I mean, there's obviously this tension, you, 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 you know, the, the teacher's obviously trying to teach you, you're trying to get away, uh, you find yourself getting more in trouble, you, you mentioned turning to um, detention or rugby, how did, how did you sort of... Um, I was, well, yeah, I was constantly in trouble. I mean, I, I, I was sort of clever, but I just couldn't apply myself at all. Uh, I didn't know how to sit down and study. My parents expected a lot of me. I mean, my, my dad then was, by then, was a university teacher. My mother was a headmistress of a school. And I just didn't want to do anything except play. Um, and when I was finished at school, you know, the teacher would say to me, Birdsaw, what do you want, rugby, rugby, or double detention? I'd say, I'll play rugby, sir, because I like rugby. So I, I, I went and played rugby, and I used to spend most of my time at school when I wasn't uh, in trouble playing rugby. Um, and it, so I got... You know, sort of, I, I was well known in the school. Um, uh, I, you know, I was a sort of likable bloke, but I was, I was just quite mischievous, and I didn't really want to settle down to, to anything academic. Mm. So you have this, I guess, you, it's about this innate belief, and, and I think a lot of people do. There's, a, there's a sense of just, well, there has to be something beyond just me and, and, and maybe this planet, but not fully knowing what that might be. Um, you've said here that at the age of 14, 15, you went to a Billy Graham. Uh, convention, and for those that don't know, Billy Graham was, was a travelling evangelist who would who would travel the world um, and preaching uh, the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, and, and coming. And so, obviously, that spoke to you, um, and it's obviously a pivotal time in your life, especially being a teenager of 15. Maybe share a little bit about about that night and what what happened, um, and what you sensed. Um, I don't know why, but some, at some some stage during my parents life there there was some sort of conflict and I don't know what it was but they changed from the Baptist Church to the Church of England um, I'm, I'm still not sure why but in uh, I think it was 1966 my father decided he was going to get baptised and took us all to a Church of England church and all of us were baptised in the Church of England um, so I was brought up in this Anglic Anglican church then and I was a server in the church and uh, you know I knew all this sort of ritual and all, all the um, you know, the liturgy and everything like that. But I never really understood about God at all. Um, and then I saw there was a Billy Graham convention on. And this was in a, a city called Birmingham. Um, he was actually in London, and it was a video link um, to a, a big hall in, in the city. So I went along to that. And I was about 14 or 15 years old, I think. And th this man actually preached. Um, I don't remember about what, but I presume it was about salvation. And I was very, very moved by it. And when they asked if anybody wanted to go forward to be prayed for, I did. And so then I got all these packs from things like Scripture Union, I think it was, um, to, to actually you know, study the Bible. And again, that was more academic work, and I didn't really like that very much. And so that sort of fell by the wayside as well. So my 
uh, you know, being called by God, I could see that I was being called probably, but I again rejected it and went off and decided to do my own thing and went back to playing rugby. <laughs> like many do. Um, so tell us a little bit about how, I mean, how do you go from, from there? And, and you mentioned at the age of 17, uh, starting to get involved in the ships. And, uh, you know, you, you need a certain qualification to do that. Maybe take us from that part of your life, sort of that age of 17 and moving forward. Um, at school, the, the school I was at, they were concentrating on who, people who had academic ability. And I was one of those no-hopers. They knew I was a no-hoper. Um, my parents were really disappointed with me. My father had seen me as the person to follow in his footsteps. And I think, thank goodness I didn't. But... <laughs> Um, well, that's from my perspective, but uh, I think they were all very, very disappointed with me. But this, the school could realise I wasn't going to get enough qualifications to get into the sixth form and go to university. So I was told I had to find a career to look for. Well, a friend of mine, he'd, his uncle worked as a shipping agent for Union Steamships, and he had all these pictures of ships, and I'd had them around my wall from when I was about 14 years old, and I was really fascinated by ships. But also, I was also fascinated by... Uh, cars, and one of the cars, the cars I liked was James Bond, um, because the car had my initial on it, and that was one. <laughs> and I found that as a third mate, I had earned, earned the same amount of money as I could buy a DB4 with. So I decided I'd go to sea, and all I had to do was pass five O levels, including um, maths, physics, in, sorry, maths, English, and a science, and two others, and I just managed to get that. So just absolutely <laughs> dreadful grades. My best grade was woodwork. <laughs> um, and so I joined the shipping company at the age of 17. Um, and uh, it was a big tanker company. And I came away to sea and I was flown out to the Philippines. My mother was heartbroken. Um, I was flown to the Philippines at the age of 17 years old. And uh, yeah, be, be, sort of began a totally new life really. And you mentioned here that it was there that you started living what you describe as the selfish, greedy, self-indulgent um, type of lifestyle where you spent most of your money partying when you weren't working. Um, and you talk about falling in love. And I guess as a young man, you're sort of, you know, you, you have this money, there's, there's not so much this responsibility. And you mentioned meeting um, a female. Maybe let's start to unpack some of that. What, what does living the selfish, greedy, and self-indulgent life look like? Well, I was earning quite a lot of money. I mean, by the time I qualified at 21, I was earning as much as my mother did as a headmistress. And she was quite upset, really, because I didn't save anything. I never bought my Aston Martin DB4. Um, <laughs> I, I blew it mostly on booze, um, partying, uh, just sort of going places, just doing anything I wanted to. Uh, I didn't buy a car. I didn't drive a car. I was usually I was drinking too much to drive a car, uh, and and enjoy myself. I mean, if I wanted to go somewhere, I got a taxi because it was far cheaper. Um, so I was sort of uh, working on ships, and we'd we'd be away for four months and have two months off. And in my two months off, um, all my mates were at work, um, so I went to the pub at lunchtime, um, and then I'd sort of go out with them in the evenings. Um, I had an accident on a, on a ship and I ended up in hospital in New York uh, and I met a girl who was a trainee nurse at the time 
and I fell absolutely head, head over heels in love with her. Um, and so then I started going to New York for my uh, two months off, and it, it, whenever I could, I'd go up to New York. And <coughs> I don't know, I'd, I think jealousy is probably one of the hardest um, emotions that I've, I deal with. I really don't know how to handle it at all. Even now, I feel quite bad if I get jealous about things. But I phoned up one day and she said she was going out and I pestered her and pestered her. And she eventually told me that she was going out with another guy. And I didn't know what to do. So I turned back to the only thing I really knew, my way of resolving problems. And that was to go and get absolutely, you know, um, blown away on drinking as much booze as I could. And that was my solution, really, to any problem I had. I'd just go and drink um, because I didn't know what else to do. And my... My thinking was that if I got out of my head, then I'd get this little bit of rest from it. And then when I came to, it would be a much clearer and understandable situation. Never actually worked out like that, but, but uh, that, was, that was my way of thinking. So um, anyway, I got, I got absolutely rotten drunk drinking a, a lot of gin. Um, I was in Baton Rouge, Louisiana at the time. Uh, I walked off the ship. Uh, I just went to the immigration and I said, I want to go home. And they said, have you got a visa? And I said, no. And they didn't know really what to do with it. I said, I've got a ticket. I'd been and bought my ticket. I just wanted to go back to the UK. So they put me on a flight and off I went. Um, and that, that was the end of that then, as far as I was concerned. Um, it was, I, I just got so upset about it that I didn't know what else to do. So I, I, I got a I sack from my employer. Um, you know, they couldn't understand, and I, I wasn't able to actually explain to them why I'd done what I'd done. Um, you know, they just thought I was somebody being irresponsible uh, walking off, but to me it was a, an emotional thing, and it was something really I couldn't explain, and I never did explain to anybody for a long, long time. How much of a, um, a hold at this stage were you finding alcohol had on you as a person? I, I, don't, I don't think at the time that it did have, but the trouble was I drank all the time. I mean, it, it, being at sea, it was just the acceptable thing. Everybody drank. Um, and I remember at the, that particular trip, I was working with two engineers who were, who were on watch, and at the end of every watch, which was a four, we'd work four hours and have eight hours off, then work four hours and have eight, eight hours off. So you worked eight hours in every 24, but you did that round the clock, seven days a week, every day of the month for the whole four to six months you were on the boat. So I was drinking, you know, 16 cans of beer a day, essentially. Wow. So I'd, I'd just get drunk and go to bed. I mean, I, I never thought it. I never, I was okay for work and I was fine. Um, and I came home and I did the same sort of thing. And so I never really realized that, that alcohol was, have, was that important. But it got to a stage later in my life when whenever I was going to go and do something, I'd have a drink. If I was going to go to the pub, I'd have a drink before I went, so I felt in the mood. Um, if I was going to church, I'd have a drink before I went. Um, if I was going out for a bike ride, I'd have a drink or have a drink when you got there. You know, it, it, was, it was just part of everything. Um, and, I, and as life progressed, I, you know, I'd, I'd, I sort of focused around it, um, not really realizing that it was taking me away spiritually, away from any, anything spiritual that I ever had. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, so you come back to the UK um, and you met 
uh, a next door neighbour to your mum and dad's um, who encourage you to, to maybe take this lady out and you know go to a party. Let's start unpacking some of that because that's where I guess it, another event turns, isn't it? Uh, I think it was in oh, the early 80s. Um, my mother and father were going away to the to Australia and New Zealand. Um, I, they'd arranged a lecture tour and they're having a bit of a holiday to come and see my sister who was here in Upper Hutt. And my mother said to me, she said, while I'm away, she says, why don't you take out the lady next door? Because she's been on her own for a few years and she hasn't been out. So I asked this lady next door if she wanted to come to a party with me. Um, she was a few years older than me. She had three kids. And I was taking her out under obligation. And she was going with me because she thought she might meet somebody interesting. <laughs> the, big, the big problem was I was there and drink was there. And um, I had too much to drink and she had too much to drink. And uh, I took her home and one thing led to another. And by the time that my parents came back from Australia, I was living next door. And, and their house had been burgled. Uh, um, and I, 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 just, I, I just didn't think about consequences of anything. Mm. I, just, I just did things. I, I mean, okay, I can blame it on booze, but it wasn't really that. It was just that I never, ever thought about consequences of what my actions were. And I think I was like that for a lot of my life. You know, I never really understood. Um, and so I ended up marrying this girl. Um, because I didn't know how to get out of it. Um, And it's a a sad thing to say. I mean, she was tremendous. She was a tremendous person. But I liked her because she was a good cook, she brewed beer, and she could drink as much whiskey as me. Um, I got on well with her. I got on well with the kids. And so for many years, I suppose we we were very happy to a certain extent. Um, life was quite difficult though I mean uh, suddenly I was having to provide for a family and uh, so my lifestyle had to change to a certain extent Um, and I found that fairly difficult because I was still quite selfish to a certain extent yeah Um, and I wanted things my way so when I went away I just carried on really when I went back to work I carried on really just the same as I had before I was um, married you mentioned, um, you know, throughout that time, and you were married for 25 years. Um, but as you say, you, you, I guess the habits that had been formed pre this were still there. Um, what was, I mean, maybe share what what happened. I mean, you're obviously not now together. Um, what happened um, between the time of being together, going away, and then now, obviously with it being separated or divorced. Um, lots of things changed uh, in, first I was made redundant uh, and that was because one night we'd been drinking a bottle of rum and we went outside to see Halley's Comet and Halley's Comet passed over in, it was 1984 I think or four or five something like that and I went out and we lived in Devon at the time and it was very, very dark, no street lighting and I went outside and I'd had rather too much to drink and I fell in the storm drain and broke my ankle. 
And so as the company was making redundancies, they chose me. So I, I went. So suddenly I, there I was. I had a family and no work. Um, plus the fact that I was wait, <laughs> waiting to get um, my ankle fixed. Um, so then I started to work on ferries. Um, and instead of being away for four or five months at a time, I was only working away for a week or two weeks at a time. Uh, we were still allowed to drink on board at the time, so I'd go away and I'd drink when I was away and I'd drink when I was at home. Uh, then in 1987, they had the Herald of Free Enterprise accident and they stopped us drinking on the ship. So then I couldn't drink when I was away, um, but I drink when I came home. But uh, I was in a position then where I knew a lot of people and I used to start smuggling booze onto the ship and selling it. Um, and I had a, I was reported for this by a, a, a purser, a, a girl who I had an affair with, and um, due to one thing or another, she reported me, and I got in trouble, and I uh, was suspended from work. So I then had to admit to my wife why I was suspended from work, um, and she was a little bit upset about it. Um, well, more than a little bit, <laughs> um, and couldn't really understand it, but. You know, she, I think she forgave me at the time, and I then went to work for somebody else. And I decided then that when I was working, I wasn't going to get into trouble anymore. I was just going to not drink and, you know, do my job. And so the company I went to work for then, I worked for for 19 years, and I didn't drink at all when I was away. But the first thing I did when I came off the ship was going to the pub and have a large whiskey before driving home. And quite often that was two or three hundred miles. You know, so I... I was sort of obsessing about having a drink even when I was away. Um, I worked for that company for quite a long time and during that period I was uh, on some high speed boats. Uh, these, you didn't have accommodation on board, I just uh, was on board for the uh, period we were running, so I'd be on board for eight hours or something like that and then go off and then, my, so my company gave me a house to live in, um, in Ireland. And, there I found that uh, I had a far greater freedom to do what I wanted to do um, and I was away from home for that week while I was working and it was during that time that I wanted to keep an eye on all the people who were working with me they were all young all youngsters uh, you know usually um, just finished university that sort of age uh, quite often they were there for a summer seasonal job and they wanted a party all the time and I wanted to keep an eye on them to make sure I knew what was going on. Um, so I joined Facebook. Um, now, everyone thinks Facebook is wonderful, or many people think Facebook is wonderful. I, I think that Facebook is absolutely dreadful due to my experiences. Um, I was contacted through Facebook by this uh, lady who I'd left in uh, America when I was in my early 20s. And... So after, you know, uh, messaging and Skyping and things like this, she said to me, oh, why don't you come out and see me? Well, I managed to um, find a, a meeting, um, or said it was a meeting, <laughs> to go to in New York. Sure. And I told my wife I was going off to this uh, professional meeting in New York. She couldn't quite understand it because I'd never ever been interested in anything like that before in my life. Um, but off I, I, you know, I, off I went to New York and I stayed in a hotel. 
and spent a, a week with this um, lady and who then told me she didn't want to see me anymore and I wasn't really prepared for that uh, I didn't really know what I wanted but suddenly this, the feeling of um, jealousy came back again and I reverted back to exactly the same as I had done 25 years before and I just went and got drunk I didn't know what else to do and I got drunk and I stayed drunk as much as I possibly could and so I flew home my, my wife wanted to know what was going on um, I was really sort of depressed uh, I was just drinking lots I went to the doctor told him I was, I was suffering from depression and he signed me off work um, and she didn't, didn't understand I hadn't explained anything I hadn't shared anything I hadn't opened up about anything um, and so my, 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 my employer was sort of um, supportive to start with but then this period went on and on and on and eventually my wife pestered me and pestered me to the extent and I actually told her where I'd been and why. Um, and she was quite distressed. Um, she chased me around the house with a knife. Uh, eventually she told me to get out. And so I, I left uh, our family home and I went to live in a caravan in the middle of Wales in a, in a farmer's field. And the only thing I, I wanted to do was drink um, because it was my answer to everything. And so I... I just uh, started buying, you know, loads of, of wine, beer, whiskey, um, really just drinking as much as I could, just wanting to drown my sorrows. I just felt so, so full of self-pity. Um, I felt as if I'd been the one, I was the one that was being wronged, um, ever so resentful about all sorts of things, um, mostly against my wife, um, who really hadn't done anything. Mm. Um, and I felt, uh, well, definitely felt suicidal. I tried to commit suicide once by taking sleeping tablets. Uh, that doesn't work. Uh, you just sleep a long time. Uh, and, um, yeah, and so I there was in this caravan in the middle of Wales for several months, just drinking and drinking. Um, and I'd, I really didn't know what to do. You know, I, I, I just didn't know what to do. And I didn't care. Mm. I just wanted to die. I wanted to be on my own. Um, I had no will at all to do anything. Mm. Um, and I think I mentioned to you, but during this time it snowed. And it was really, really heavy snow. And some of the worst weather we'd had in the UK for a long time. And I was in this caravan. And I couldn't open the door because there was snow outside. But I could open the top off. And um, I remember, you know, I'd sort of open the top off. And then I'd have to sort of try and reach down and get the snow away. And the problem in my caravan was I, I, that my heater packed up because the a little plastic thing was so cold it brittle fractured it as I was trying to light the heater. Um, so I actually stayed underneath three duvets on the bed. And then I had all the booze lined up next to me. Well, the beer froze and the wine froze. And the only actual thing that actually stayed fluid was vodka. So that's quite good if you're in cold weather. But, but, but it wasn't really that funny, you know, because I, I, I used to get my vodka off uh, Polish lorry drivers who I, I knew were traveling on the ship. Um, they always used to have a stash that they'd sell to people. Um, so I used to go down the road. On my bicycle, I had a little push bike, 
and I'd go down the road to the port on my bicycle and pick up this, these bottles of vodka and I actually fell off my bicycle and Polish lorry drivers have a dreadful reputation of being drunk. You know, we hate Polish lorry drivers because they're invariably drunk when they come on. But I was actually picked up by a Polish lorry driver and taken down to the police station. Um, and so they, they were very good to me, Polish lorry driver. <laughs> so I guess life's pretty dark at this this point. And, yeah. you know, you're in a caravan and, and there's not, you said, even, I guess... As you were speaking, the words sort of came to me that you've, you've reached the end of, of even yourself. Um, and I know what that's like. Um, your wife uh, sounds like she's a pretty incredible lady because you, you put in here that she had compassion on you and she she was one of the people that helped you get help mm. and came um, to the caravan and actually helped you find a centre that could help with mm. this alcohol. And it's from there that you actually started going to a, a church community uh, where you met yeah. um, a man who started sharing. Maybe let's pick it up from there as to yeah. the whole rehab and, and then moving forward into meeting Christ. Well, my uh, my old, elder stepdaughter, she was she'd been anorexic and she'd taken a lot of in, uh, interest during her, her time as into sort of obsessive compulsive behaviours, and uh, she with her mother actually found looked up on the internet site and found a, what we call a treatment centre in the UK, a, a rehab they call them here, um, somewhere that where I could go. And I had to be referred by a doctor, so they took me to the doctor and I was referred to this rehab. And so I, I went off to this treatment centre in Western Supermare. And on a, on a Sunday we were allowed out. The rest of the time we were locked in. Uh, we were allowed visitors for two hours a week and um, that was the only contact you had then with the outside world. But on Sunday we could go to church. So I went to a church. Now, uh, it was a Church of England church just down the road. And Church of England church in the UK, I thought was fairly boring, you know. And I turned up to this church and there was two things that were very, very different. One, it was evangelical. And the other, there was a black priest. And his name was Everton. <laughs> and it, it, he was an amazing man. He, he really was an amazing man. And um, he actually was on the, the direct. He was one of the directors of the treatment centre. But um, during the service, he asked if anybody was wanting to be prayed for, and you know, quite a lot of people stood up. But I went up to the front, and I must admit, I just broke down. And, and, and I, I don't know what it was, but suddenly that feeling of all the things I'd been doing wrong started to come over me. Um, and I was kneeling before the altar, looking up at the crucifix with, with Jesus there. And I, I could almost feel the pain of those nails through his hands and that sacrifice that he made and that realization that he'd done that because of what I'd done. And I'd, I'd, you know, I'd done some pretty bad stuff really. Um, and I, I felt so dreadful, you know, absolutely dreadful. Um, and I just sort of broke down and I decided from then on that I was going to turn my life to him. And, um, you know, I prayed with the priest and other people. Um, and from them, then on, uh, I made that decision to turn my life and my will over to God. Because I, that realization of what he'd actually done. Mm. And it's hard, it's a hard thing to explain. But that, suddenly that realization of what Jesus did for me, 
became so clear. And after all these years of being brought up in that sort of family environment and never, ever understanding it. Well, do you think that was uh, just sort of over being brought up in the environment, what you'd heard had come to life, or was it just in that particular moment, of, I guess, of reaching that point of the end of self, and then the Bible says that um, you know, Jesus draws all men to himself. And so that what I'm hearing is the sense of drawing men, but do you think that was it sort of just in the moment that sort of all that came, that you sort of realised that? I, I think it was just the Holy Spirit in the place acting on us. I mean, there really, really, really was a strong sense of the Holy Spirit in the church. It was absolutely fantastic. And, uh, and if, I, I mean, I cried. I mean, I cried in that church every time I went back for the next five weeks. You know, I just kneeled down and cry and cry and cry and couldn't stop. Um, and it was just this, uh, I don't know, it's really hard. I'd never understood what forgiveness was before. But somebody said to me, it's only when you've done a lot of bad things, you really understand what it's like to be forgiven. And maybe that's, I don't know, I don't know if that's right or not, but um, I really felt that, you know, for all the things I'd done, that he actually truly forgave me and that he'd made that sacrifice. And um, it was from then on that I I could move forward and actually um, put the past behind me. Um, there's a fellowship I belong to and it, and it says you should not, not forget the past nor wish to shut the door on it. I never understood that before because all I wanted to do was forget the past, you know, get drunk sure. and forget what happened before. Yeah. But now I can accept that and it's an important part of my life to actually be able to accept that and know that because of what Jesus did, I'm forgiven for that. Mm. Yeah, it's awesome. And Jesus says, you know, he says, come to me. All you who are heavy laden and weary, and I will give you rest. I will give you forgiveness. I will give you part of me. And then he says, but learn from me and go forward. And when we come to him in the state of humility, he will uh, meet us in that place. And so let's let's take it from there because, you know, like Jesus never promises we'll have a sweet life. He never promises that there won't be trials, there won't be tribulations. So maybe let's, you've, you've made this commitment. Um, and you've entered into this relationship. Let's pick it up from there and let's move forward as to what does that now look like? I mean, how did you get here? Um, share us a little bit about how you end up on the stage and um, what are the, um, the things that you're starting to learn about him and even yourself? What's he talking to you about? Um, well, to come to New Zealand was... <laughs> I won't say it was a challenge because it wasn't a challenge because I don't really know why I came. Um, apart from the fact that I, I, uh, I went through the uh, five months in a treatment centre and the only people that were really supportive of me was my employer and my uh, siblings, my sister who's here and my brother and sister in the UK. Um, my employer was great because I, I had to be totally honest and I went for my medical and I failed my medical. My employer sent me to see a psychologist and uh, then they said, oh, well, you should appeal your medical. So I appealed my medical and I was passed. So I was allowed to go back to work. Um, initially, I didn't go back to the position I was in completely. I had six months uh, where they were sort of keeping an eye on me. Um, but then after that, I got promoted and went back to my original 
ship that I was working on. And then I came to see my sister here in um, Upper Hutt, and there was a job advertised in the paper. Uh, and just as a matter of course, I thought, well, I'll apply for that job. And I applied, and the closing date was after I went back to the UK. Well, I went back to the UK, and I got a contact from this company, and they said, was I really interested? And I thought, that, that was a funny email to somebody, are you really interested? Um, it was a much lower position than I'd been working in, um, but I th- I thought that I could do it. But I, then I thought about it, and I thought, do I want to sort of take this great big drop in pay, you know, and you sort of think about that and think about the sort of, you know, sort of financially, and I thought, no, I'm not really interested. So I said no. So they asked if they could keep my name on file, so I said yes. So, uh, and so I forgot about it. Uh, November the following year, they contacted me again and said, would I be interested in reapplying? And by then, the dynamics had sort of changed. My wife had divorced me. Um, I, was li- I was living on my own in a, a small flat. And I thought, well, it would be nice if, if I want to change and to follow Christ totally, you have to change totally. And to leave a lot of the things behind is quite important. And the association I had where I lived, you know, people knew me as a person who was drunk in the corner of the pub, you know, and, and uh, in some ways it's, it's important to get away from things like that um, because they're not really necessary. They're, they're sort of things that hold you up in, in spiritual growth especially. Um, so I decided then I would move. Well, th- several things have happened. Firstly, I was too old because by then to apply to come to New Zealand, I was over 55. Um, and if I'd applied before, I'd have been under 55, but I was too old. I was 56. So that was the first hurdle. And the medical was the next one. Well, so I, I first I went for the medical and I told the doctor all about these problems and he says, I don't think we need to put that down, do we? And I I was totally honest with him. And he said, we don't need to put that down. And I said, why not? And he said, well, you're all right now. (laughs) And I think, you know, for for doctors, you know, anybody in the medical profession, you know, they they know that anybody who's been alcoholic, they're alcoholic, whether you like it or not. (laughs) Um, You know, the, the possibility is still there. But since that day where I actually gave myself to Christ, I've never, ever wanted to have a drink since. That's awesome. Mm. And I never have. Mm. And I never want to. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the first hurdle over. And um, then we had the age problem. So I said to the immigration, what about this? And she says, well, you don't qualify to come in, the, in under that visa, so just apply for the other visa. And I said, well, how long will that take? Well, she said, do you want to do it? And I said, oh, well, okay. Um, so I had to pay some more money. And the next day, I got my visa. Uh, it was as easy as that. So I gave my notice at work, and my company was sad to see me go, but I left with their blessing and was told if I ever wanted a job, I could go back, mm. which was quite nice. Um, uh, so I came out here, and I started work um, a year this last March, yeah, twentieth of March last year. You mentioned um, that uh, in the difference that he's making. One, I just wanted to pick up on the 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 lack of desire for alcohol 
and maybe just unpack like is, was that a sense of in making that commitment was has that been something that you, you believe Christ has sort of ripped that out of you uh, has that been a gradual process that you've actually given to him that desire and he's worked with you I think it was instantaneous to be perfectly honest I mean I never thought about it wow yeah um, but it was one of the reasons I was at that church it was one of the things I shared when I was prayed over and I've never ever wanted to drink since and I don't want to I mean if other people drink they say stuff you know yeah. I don't mind but I just don't have that desire plus the fact now I know what it does to me yeah. um, and I don't want to go there and I've also I'm eventually well at last it's taken me a while but actually taking responsibility for my own actions and I know, I know very well if I have a drink I've lost everything that I've found, and I don't want to do that. Yeah, you mentioned um, struggling to. Um, when a question asked you, you quoted the great commandment, which was awesome, and which is you know we're to love him and love others, and sharing mm-hmm. that. Uh, how can I love others when I don't even love myself? Mm-hmm. And that's a very real thing. And yet we find uh, the answer to, to loving others we can never find in ourselves either. And so we must find the love of the Father before we can even outwork that second part of that commandment. Um, and I love what you put here. You put God is asking us, so God is asking us all not just to follow Him, but to give ourselves to Him. Um, can you unpack that a bit, like for you, lot like now that you're giving your life to Him? So in this, He's creating this way. Obviously, I mean, there's this medical that maybe shouldn't have been that was. Uh, I, I just sense God's grace in that there's a job that's opening up here what does it mean to give your life to him I, I decided that uh, I was going to follow Christ absolutely that's more important than anything else and to understand his love for me actually made me realise I was a child of God and I can actually love me for a change because I'd never ever loved myself I, you know I, that feeling of not belonging and uh, being you know, without a father, um, is suddenly fulfilled with this sort of joy inside that uh, Jesus really loves me and God loves me and I'm a child of God and that, that, that's important. And because of that, I can now other, love others in the same way yeah. because I know what he's got to give them and I know what he wants me to give them. And the other thing is that I feel that I want to give myself in every way I can. And I've got a professional qualification, which is quite highly sought after. And I, I, I feel that, that I'm led um, to try and use that qualification to his glory, not mine. You know, because I've used it all my life to sort of gain wealth and blow it all, you know, um, against the toilet wall, really. Um, and now I want to do things for him. So I've actually registered with um, several Christian charities. There are, in the world, there are... Uh, I think seven Christian charity ships that I know of, um, or that I found out about. I've just been on one in the Philippines called the Logos Hope, which is part of OM, um, and that's uh, GB, run by GBA Ships, which is Good Books for All. So it's, a, it's the world's largest floating book fair, 
um, and they need qualified navigation officers to look after it. Um, it has to conform, to conform to all international regulations. And I'm also hoping at some stage to, to uh, get assigned to Mercy Ships, which is working in West Africa. But this is something I've got to discuss with my employer because I'll actually need a four-month period away to go and do that because they want us to stay for four months at a time. Um, and there's several others. I mean, I think many of you know of um, Dayspring Ministries, which is uh, working out around the Pacific Islands, taking Bibles. You know, I mean, there's all sorts of things like that going on here. And there's also a new ship called the Pacific Hope, which is um, run by Youth with a Mission. Um, and that's a hospital ship working around the Pacific Islands, which is a converted um, uh, f fish um, fishing boat of some sort. Um, so the, all those sort of things are opportunities where I can use my qualification and go and work for them for nothing. In fact, you have to pay to go, but that's cool. And, uh, uh, you know, so I'm quite happy to do that. And that's something I'm looking forward to. And the, the pastor of my last church wrote to me and he, he says, he says, following God, he says, it's just a great adventure. He says, just let go and enjoy the ride. And <laughs> it, it gets better all the time. I believe you, mate. It is absolutely fantastic. How, how have you found, um, you know that the trusting in him like can you give us a, a, a some sort of story or just you know how you've uh, obviously trusted in yourself a, a lot and now god calls you to trust in him yeah. and, and to let go well trusting myself didn't work you know i tried that for a long time just sort of working on self-will so thinking that i was the one that ran everything and i realized i didn't because i can't do it and i can't do it without him um God really sort of controls everything and I find that I have to involve him as much as I can in everything I'm doing in life. In every decision I make, especially any big decision, I'll actually uh, talk to him, I'll pray about it. If there's any sort of conflict, I'll talk to people in my life group, I'll talk to a spiritual advisor I have. Um, things like that, things, issues like that, which really help me. Um, I, I know that God is there to help me and give guidance. And... It's just amazing the way that I never understood it before, the way he talks to us. Suddenly, instead of being indecisive, you just know. You know absolutely what he wants you to do. Yeah. Uh, Give us, um, for some of us here, that might sound really quite weird. You know, like God speaks, God speaks to people. Um, but he does. And, and he does through a variety of ways. And you mentioned, um, even with the storm, um, this week. And so it'd be quite good to just, just share that, that little story because this is one way. So share with us how you heard from him and then how you acted. Well, one of the things I've learned to do is, is that I should read my Bible and pray every day. That's the most important thing. Um, because that's how he speaks to us in one way, in his word. And I always try and read it out loud because if I read it out loud, I actually hear it being said. Um, but I was captain of a ship the other day um, and I sailed from here on Thursday morning and my company expected me to go to Picton and back. And uh, I just got this, well, I, we, we knew this bad weather was coming, but everyone was saying, oh, yes, you'll be, you'll be back in time by half past ten without any bother. And... I, just before we got to the Torrey Channel entrance, uh, which is just going into the South Island, for those of you who don't know, but I, I sort of looked back at the horizon and there was, it was a very, very strange sort of line, it's sort of really, really dark over the top, really dark and threatening, with this little ray of sunshine sort of pointing down one way. And 
I just got this strange feeling. I, look, I remember looking at the, the barograph and it was just sort of starting to rise like that. And I spoke to one of my colleagues and he said, oh, you'll have no bother, you'll get back in time. Now, all of our crew uh, just do a round trip and then go home. Yeah, they all live in Wellington. And the last place they want to be is Picton. And so there were two things I did. Firstly, I phoned my spiritual advisor and had a chat with him. And he said, well, it's probably time that you got in touch with God. Which I thought was fair enough. Come on. <laughs> so, um, I then went, went to my sort of daily readings and there was, there were some readings there which were, were I, I don't know what they were. Um, but it was, uh, chapters for, from 19 Proverbs and three Ephesians and Ecclesiastes three to five. And I read these all out loud to myself. And I don't know why, but then instantaneously I knew what I had to do. And so I cancelled the sailing in Picton. And everyone was complaining at me. People were having temper tantrums. They, they really were. People were really, really upset. I was having to, all this hassle caused. They got to find hotels for them to go and stay in. The catering manager had to go up and buy underwear and toothbrushes for all our females. And it, it, he was really, really, really quite angry. And uh, this was about six o'clock. And by then, it, there was hardly any wind at all. It was only about sort of 20 knots. And it just didn't feel like there was going to be a storm. By eight o'clock, when we were, would have been halfway across the Cook Strait, um, I think there was a 14 metre sea recorded outside, outside Wellington. Um, in that sort of sea, we couldn't go at a normal speed. So I reckon we'd probably been coming into Wellington at 11 o'clock that night. And the sea conditions were 18.9 metres outside Wellington. And 18.9 metre sea is pretty big. Um, my boss phoned me up at 10 o'clock. He said, I'm glad you stayed there. He says, I'm the, you're the only ship we're not worried about because all the other two were breaking loose and floating around Wellington Harbour. I, I should have told him it was God's decision, not mine. But, <laughs> but you know, I, re, I really believe that you know, he, he does talk to us and it's just a matter of listening. And the other thing I, I learned is listening to instincts, gut instincts. Every time I'd felt something unfunny, I talked, mentioned jealousy before, any time I have that sort of funny feeling in my tummy, it's because God's given us that there to warn us about something. And it has to be listened to. And I can do that sober. Because I didn't like it before, and I used to drown it in alcohol. Now I listen to it, and I drown it in the Holy Spirit. It's awesome. It is awesome. Um, there may be people here today that, that are resonating with your story and might find themselves um, in the middle of, of the man that you were. Um, how would, what would you want to say to these people today? How do you want to encourage us all? Because we're all on a journey and we've all struggled and we've all had a past and, and a present and, and a future. Mm. And we know the love of the Father covers when we enter into that. But what would you want to say to people that, that are maybe struggling today? Well, I think if you're feeling lost in life, there is an answer, and that answer is Jesus Christ. And if you uh, want to be part of a family, and a part of a family that loves you, then we, we, we can find it through him. And it's just a matter of going to him and saying, I can't do it on my own. I really can't do it on my own. And just the acknowledgement, that acceptance of that fact that when you 
take Jesus to be your saviour you're not on your own and he's there and he's there to help you and it's a fantastic feeling inside. I mean, it's, it, it's, uh, I mean, I used to be really, really grumpy. You know, I was known as the grumpy old band, grumpy old man by my kids. You know, <laughs> had the Mr. Grumpy t-shirt and everything. Um, and I'm not like that now. I mean, he really does change your life and well, he's changed my life and it, it took for the better. I'm glad to say. Mm-hmm. And, um, the things I found here in the Rock Church is that the life groups are amazing. I've got tremendous support from the life group I'm in. Um, I go as often as I can, but it's uh, probably sometimes maybe not enough. I like, I want more of them because they're so good. Um, I love being with them. I love their company. And if I ever have a problem, you know, there's always one of them there I can phone up and say, you know, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And they know the Bible well enough to sort of tell me where to go and look. Um, and reading the Bible is important for me. I mean, I'm a very, very new Christian. Um, a child, in fact. But it's, it's just a matter of discovery. And there's so much in this thing. You know, everything you want to know is in there. Mm. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's great. That's awesome. The Bible says that Jesus will, or God, Jesus will take who we are. The Bible describes it as ashes, stuff that we've, We've, we've done in our lives and he'll transfer and give us his beauty. And really what you've heard today is, 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 is that story. And Jesus is, is changing lives. He's constantly changing our lives and bringing us into meaning and purpose and the substance of who he is. You know, that Bible says to have a peace that goes beyond your understanding, to have a joy that isn't determined by circumstance or situations, um, that go beyond feelings because it's him. And so I just want to thank you for, for sharing with us and being vulnerable, being transparent and being honest and being real. I know how hard that can be sometimes, but we need to be honest and real um, because we all struggle with things. And uh, and so we need to hear more of that. So just I just want to thank you. I just want to pray for you if that's cool. Um, so, Father, I want to thank you for, for Jono. I want to thank you for his vulnerability today. I want to thank you, Lord, for the transformational work that you have done and are doing and will continue to do. And, Father, we just lift him to you and pray, Lord, that you would continue to speak, continue to guide, and for the purpose that you have for him, Father, that he will fulfill that well. Lord, that he would continue in his workplace to bring you glory. He would continue to hear, Lord, someone with a, such a role of responsibility and who uh, other people are trusting and putting their lives in his hands by, by, by guiding uh, the fairies, Father. And so we want to thank you for the other night. We want to thank you for speaking and giving him the wisdom and speaking to him. Um, but Lord, we want to thank you for today. And we pray for every person that's here, Lord, that uh, if we need to make a decision that we would, if we need to commit our lives as followers at a greater measure that we would, and we would allow you to truly be our Lord and King and to define who we are as your sons, as your daughters, knowing that we can truly put our lives in your hands. You are the master, Father. You are the master father who guides his children. And so we want to thank you and praise your name this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give Jono a thanks for sharing.
just want to read is this passage because if there is someone here this morning, um, these words are for you. Um, Christ says this, he says, come to me. So there needs to be a decision, there needs to be a choice that we need to make. We need to make an active choice of our will to, to engage and move towards him. It says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. And I love those words, all. You know, it's not defined by your skin color. It's not defined by the country you were born in. It's not defined by the family you are raised in. He says, all people. Doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, would all people, let them come to me, who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will bring you into a position in me. And you know, heavy laden is not necessarily about life sucks. We carry burdens, we carry worries, we carry anxiousness. You've heard this morning about carrying jealousy. Uh, it can just be things of yourself and they, they, you become consumed in you and it becomes heavy and you know it's just everything just seems hard because you're you're going down avenues and, and pathways looking for answers and discovering that they're not there and I know my own journey you know it's a bit like you sort of that little voice screams and, and six months later you're trying to ignore it and then you ignore you can ignore it for about six months a year then it screams again and you're constantly just pressing it suppressing it and it leads you to feeling heavy and laden. There's no joy. There's no purpose. And this is what Jesus is saying. And he says, take my yoke upon you. Take me upon you. Take my teachings my way. He said, I am the way. I am the life. There is no other way to experience this fullness of life that I've come to bring. And he says, and then learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. And like I've said to you this morning, Jesus never promises you that life will be easy in the sense of you're never going to have trials. You'll have to still confront things. But he promises that he'll be with us. He promises that he'll never leave us, never forsake us. Times he even says, I'll carry you through. And so we are uh, one of the things we love to do here more than ever is just uh, invite people, if there's anyone that would like to today make a decision. Um, is there anyone with us that would say, Greg, you know, I'm ready to make a decision. The Bible says that every person has fallen short. Every person has fallen short of a standard that's God's standard, which is a standard of perfection. It's a standard of holiness. Hence, he had to send his son to bring us back into this reality because it's all about relationship. And so you and I were born for relationship. Even before we were conceived, we were born for relationship. And so the question I just want to ask you, are you in that relationship with this person called Jesus? Because he died for you to be in it. He sent his son to, so it's possible for us to be in it and to discover a lot, uh, your own version of what you've heard today. Your own version of coming into an experience that God can take out desires. He, his power can rip things out like a desire for alcohol that was consuming Jono's life while at the same time he will walk you through those things as well so is there anyone here if, you, if there is just put up your hand and say I'm ready Greg I'm ready to make a decision don't have to be embarrassed it's the greatest thing I ever did the day I, I, I said that's me is there anyone this morning that would say yep I'm ready Greg I don't want to force I won't need to force you you'll feel your heart pumping 
you'll know. Good man. Good man. Is there anyone here that that's part of our community that just wants to say, you know what? I just need more of you. I just want more of you. I, I want a, I want a greater desire, a greater purpose, a greater passion. Is there anyone here that just wants to acknowledge that today? That's cool. Well, let's just pray as a community. Father, I want to thank you, Lord, that you're in the business of redeeming lives. Lord, that you are in the business of transformation and bringing us into a reality of you. Father, I thank you for my brother that's acknowledged this morning, Lord, and wants to make a greater commitment, a commitment today. And we'll just have a chat after the service. And Lord, I pray today for for us as a community, Lord. And so God, we've asked today for a greater desire and a greater passion for you for prayer, for your word, for your presence. And so, Lord, we want to acknowledge you as Lord and Saviour. And we ask this by faith. The Bible says when we ask, we will receive what we've asked for if we ask by faith. And so we ask by faith today, Lord, for a greater reality of your Son, Jesus, that sets us free. In Jesus' name.